Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North, True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I do believe that Lucas was involved in what happened to him. But I don't believe that he was alone. Justin was really, really, he was a big guy. He was 6'3", and he was really fit. And it would have been hard for a single person. Not possible, but it would have been very difficult. And uh, Justin didn't wander away and disappear into a swamp. He didn't wander there on his own. Somebody put him there. I've said before, you know, somebody threw my son away like he was garbage. And, and I just, I really miss him. And his murderers are free. In rural Ontario, a family and a community is in anguish waiting for answers that don't seem to be coming. In December of 2020, a young man went missing, only to be found deceased five months later. The medical examiner's report seems to be at odds with the local police's theory of the case. One man has been charged for obstruction, but no one has been charged with murder. And meanwhile, a distraught mother cries out for justice. This is the suspicious death of Justin Evans, and this is True North True Crime. and welcome to episode 33 of True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We want to start off this episode by thanking some people who donated some coffees this week. A special thank you to James, Philip, Dolores, Terry H., Paul, Van City Jilly, 
and Christiane for buying the coffees. True North True Crime is an independent, self-funded podcast that brings awareness to missing people and victims of violent crime in Canada. If you would like to donate to the podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. We also sell t-shirts and other merchandise at our Tee Public store, so if merchandise is more your thing, you can check out the link in our show notes. Thank you all for supporting our podcast. Now let's get into tonight's episode. So tonight we are talking about the suspicious death and suspected homicide of Justin Evans, a 22-year-old man who was from Gravenhurst, Ontario. This is a very recent and ongoing investigation. In order to put this episode together, we used publicly available news articles. We also spoke with Justin's mom, Jamie. We will be using some of Jamie's audio in this episode, but sadly some of the audio quality was bad, so we cannot use it all. There are a lot of moving parts with this case, and there have been many social media posts about it and online conflict, and we couldn't possibly cover all of that. But if you would like to get deeper into this case, we suggest you check out the 27 YouTube videos that cover this case on the YouTube channel, It's a Crime. Linda, the host of It's a Crime, has done an amazing job of really getting into the details of this case. We are grateful to Justin's mom, Jamie, and to her family for trusting us with Justin's story. So this episode takes place between Gravenhurst, Ontario, and Kilworthy, Ontario. Both um, small towns are sort of involved in some way. Gravenhurst is located on the traditional land of the Chippewa of the Rama, Wata Mohawk First Nations, and the Moon River Métis. Gravenhurst is a small town in the Muskoka region of Ontario with a population of about 12,000 people. Muskoka is a stunning place, by the way, with rivers, lakes, and a lot of natural beauty. In fact, it is such a beautiful and desirable place that the population of Gravenhurst doubles in the summertime, with many Canadians flocking to their cabins for summer getaways. This area is usually quite safe and really doesn't report a high crime rate at all. In December of 2020, Justin Evans was a 22-year-old man living in Gravenhurst, Ontario. He was six foot three, with short brown hair. He had a slim build, blue eyes, and he was a clean-cut type of person. He enjoyed the outdoors and spending time with his family. Justin has two sisters and a brother. He has a great relationship with his mom and his stepdad. Here is his mother, Jamie, talking about Justin. Again, there are some audio issues. We felt it was important to hear from Jamie. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Justin, um, he was he was really happy, um, and he loved doers and spending time with his with family. Like, he never missed any function, whether it was a birthday party, uh, a holiday, a dinner. He always came, even if he, because he worked nights, so even if he missed sleep, he'd still be there. He never wanted to miss anything and um he really liked listening to audiobooks and uh, he just loved them he listened to them if, if he was awake more often than not especially like if he wasn't out doing something he had an earbud in his ear and a book playing and what he liked to do he went to work and he worked really hard and he was really responsible um his one sister Chris is only a year and a half younger and they were like best friends and then his other sister she was only 15 when he disappeared and he spoiled her so much, um, probably more than 
really what he needed to, I would say, but he just really liked to spend time with her and do special things for her. And if she wanted something and he could afford it, he'd just buy it for her. And they went out for breakfasts and suppers. And he, uh, he just bought a snow machine to go ice fishing because he loved to fish much. It was possibly, I think, his favorite outdoor activity. He was just such a good, loving person, young man, that he'd help people in the park where he lived. If they, he seen people need help gardening, he'd stop and give them a hand. You know, even dress up for, uh, like, a clown for his little cousins, because he was old, much older than his cousins. Um, but during COVID, uh, you know, we were dressed up and, and done a little... Um, a little spot for each kid and uh, like for the kids to come to and, uh, and they trick or treated with in the backyard. And uh, you know, he was was so tall and he'd ride them around his shoulders. And and that's just what Justin liked to do. That's who he was. He was just so genuine about, you know, he'd get up every day with a smile on his face and he loved life so much. So clearly Justin was a big part of his family. And like his mom said, in October of 2020, Justin made a big deal of dressing up so that the younger kids in his extended family could enjoy a COVID-safe Halloween. Up until he was 18 years old, Justin worked at his grandparents' grocery store. Around then, Justin decided it was time that he maybe venture out on his own. So eventually, Justin got his own place and a new job at a meat processing plant. This was obviously a tough job as you're basically working in a giant fridge all day. And as we all know, uh, living on your own can be quite expensive, especially when you're a young person. One day, Justin was approached with an opportunity by his best friend from kindergarten, who was named Bud McKinney. Bud told Justin that the company he was working at was hiring. This company was called McLaren Press Graphics. Justin jumped at the opportunity to work with his friend, Bud. But Justin didn't drive. He had a license, but he just didn't like to drive. Bud offered Justin a room in his mobile home for about $500 a month. This mobile home was located at the Muskoka Mobile Home Park in nearby Kilworthy. In this mobile home lived Bud McKinney, his girlfriend, Kiara, and Bud's parents, Glenna and Ken McKinney. In exchange for the $500 a month, Glenna would cook meals for Justin and he would have his own room in the mobile home. Bud would give him rides to work as they both worked the same shifts at McLaren Press. Justin and Bud would work from midnight to 8 a.m. at McLaren Press Graphics and then drive home together. The drive home was about 20 minutes. So we are now going to try to put together a timeline for the week that Justin went missing. On the weekend of December 5th and 6th, Justin stayed with his family at their home. They decorated the Christmas tree and spent some time together. This would be the last time that Justin's family would ever see him alive. We know that after the weekend, Justin went back to his weekly routine of working graveyard shifts with Bud. It is important to note that the two young men had different strategies for dealing with shift work. Bud would usually go to bed immediately after getting home at 8.30 a.m., whereas Justin preferred to stay awake and then sleep in the afternoon. So we know that on Thursday, December 10th, the two young men worked the midnight to 8 a.m. shift. They drove home together after work and parted ways. Bud went to bed, and Justin stayed up and did his thing. 
This is where things get blurry and details are hard to come by. Apparently, no one in the household remembers seeing Justin on Thursday evening or Friday all day and night. Bud, his girlfriend Kiara, and Bud's parents all live in this residence. That's four people who have gone without seeing Justin for a day and a half. Then on Saturday, December 12th, Bud's mother, Glenna, says she saw Justin that morning at around 8.30 a.m. She says she made him breakfast, and then he went out to his shed to work on a motorcycle he was rebuilding. She says that she then fell asleep in her chair in the living room around 8.45 a.m. It should be noted that it is quite possible that Glenna is getting her days mixed up and she is perhaps thinking it was Friday morning. However, Bud and Kiara say that they saw Justin in one of the two sheds on the property at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. A thing to remember here about this 7 a.m. sighting is that the sun doesn't rise until 7.45 in December in that area. So Bud and Kiara then say that they left early that morning to go on a shopping trip to the larger town of Barrie, Ontario, located about 45 minutes away. They claim in a Facebook post that they waved to Justin in the shed in the darkness of 7 a.m., and they claim that they shopped all day in Barrie and then returned home in the early evening. At 3.44 p.m., Jamie, Justin's mom, receives a text from Justin's phone. The text message is short and in response to what days Justin has off for Christmas holidays. In hindsight, Jamie does not believe that Justin sent this text. Later that same evening, Justin does not show up at the dinner table. Bud and Kiara noticed this, but they claim they just thought Justin was at his parents' house. It should be noted here that Justin was the type of person who would always tell people where he was going. Bud and Kiara claimed that they spent Saturday night in their room watching movies, playing games, and eating snacks. Then, on Sunday, Bud says he still hadn't seen Justin. Bud leaves for work without Justin for his midnight shift at McLaren Press, and keep in mind that Bud is Justin's ride to work. Bud arrives at work where he realizes that Justin is not there. Justin has not called their supervisor or anyone to say he was not coming into work. Bud then gets off work at 8 a.m. on Monday morning. He goes home. Still, no sign of Justin. He claims he tries to phone him, but he did not look for him. After he woke up, he went into Justin's room. Inside Justin's room, he found Justin's wallet and phone charger. He also found the travel bag that Justin would use when he went over to his parents' house. It had not been used. Bud then checked the shed that Justin would hang out in. The shed was found in disarray. Bud then asked his mom, Glenna, to phone Justin's grandmother, who then phoned Jamie, Justin's mom. This is now around 4.15 p.m. Here is what Jamie remembers about that day. And then on uh, Monday, December 14th, 2020, uh, my mom got a call and uh, Glenna called my mom because they hadn't seen Justin since Saturday, December 12th. And my mom called me and asked if I'd seen Justin or heard from him and I hadn't, which we know Justin would never just leave and not tell anybody he was going out, even though he was all grown up. He was just respectful like that. Um, so I 
left work and drove as fast as I could. It was snowing pretty hard to where he lives. It's about 20 minutes good driving from where I work. So it probably took me about a half an hour. An officer called me on the way and uh, told me not to go to the shed. Um, I'd also called Glenna on my way there and they, she told me that they hadn't called the police. I told her to call the police right now. And, uh, and then when I got there, um, the police hadn't arrived yet, but I was told on the phone by the officer that called me that they were about 10 minutes away. Or so. so I went inside and again, Glenna, um, told me that, that nobody'd seen him since Saturday. She said that she'd seen him going to his shed around eight thirty in the morning. Uh, Bud told, told me that him and his dad had gone to Erie on Saturday <laughs> It wasn't until Glenna said he should check the shed, he, is what he said, that he went out to the shed. And that's when he, he said that they seen the blood in the shed. And he, he'd also checked Justin's room and seen his wallet on his bed. And his travel bag was on the floor and his phone chair was plugged in. And Justin, if he was leaving, he would take those things, obviously. The police arrived and they, we filled out a missing persons report. And they started taping off the, the property, and I knew that something had terrible had happened to him. So Jamie arrived at the mobile home park before the police arrived. The police told her to stay out of the shed specifically, which eventually she found out was because there was blood evidence inside. So let's take a moment to talk about these sheds on the So behind the McKinney mobile home was a shed. This shed is referred to as Ken's Shed. This is the shed that Bud's dad, Ken, would use. Beside the mobile home was a lot where a different mobile home used to be. That home has burnt down. However, the shed behind it remained. One day, Justin was doing some cleaning up of the old brush and debris that was found on that plot of land, and the caretaker for the mobile home thanked Justin for cleaning the area. As a reward, the caretaker let Justin use the shed that was behind that old mobile home plot um, for his own projects, and people referred to that as Justin's shed. So inside of Justin's shed was a motorcycle that he was rebuilding, uh, and Justin enjoyed working on these kinds of projects. He enjoyed smoking a little bit of weed, putting on an audiobook, and tinkering in his shed. According to Bud, when they went to look for Justin in Justin's shed, they found the shed in disarray. Inside the shed, there were also pools of blood on the ground. This is why the police had to tape off the area. This was now a crime scene. So, obviously, as I said, there was blood in the shed. Uh, the police told us. Um, it was just a couple of days after that they told us it was an unsurvivable amount of blood in the shed on the floor. Um, and we also, Bud and uh, Kiara, we're not sure which one or, or both of them, we're not sure. Um, there's been different stories, but took pictures and have shown and sent them to people and the pictures have made themselves to members of my family. Um, I personally never went to the shed. I, uh, I don't, I don't want to go there. Um, but I, I, I've heard about it and, uh, his cell phone is, is missing. It's never been found. 
So the police would find what was described as an unsurvivable amount of blood on the floor of the shed. Blood had begun to pool all around the front tire of the motorcycle that Justin was working on. However, we have heard that there was no blood on the door or the door handle. Also, as Jamie stated, Justin's phone was nowhere to be found. To this day, his phone has never been located. At the time of Justin being reported missing, the local police interviewed witnesses, including everyone who lived in the McKinney mobile home. They also searched the mobile home and several vehicles on the property. Police also engaged in ground searches to find Justin, but they were largely unsuccessful. The area surrounding the trailer park is thick with trees and brush. There are also small bodies of water that dot the landscape. Keep in mind that this would have been winter and there was snow on the ground. Jamie and her family offered many times to search the area. They have a large family and many engaged community members who wanted to help. But the police said no. They wanted to handle the searches on their own. And clearly law enforcement missed something. Because on May 19, 2021, five months after Justin went missing, his body was found about 300 meters from the mobile home park. Yeah, so uh, Justin was found on May 19th, 2020, by a, a young woman that was just out for a walk. And there's a swampy pond um, at the back. And he was found at the edge and is approximately, um, this is from roughly the police measurements, um, or there, I'm not sure how to figure it out, but um, 350 meters. Um, as the crow flies, like a straight shot from from where he lived. Um, it, it's further to walk. It's a lot of bush in that area. You know, as, as geographic goes, it's not that far from where he lived. We were originally told the entire area had been searched, and then he was found so close to home, and, and not in the water. He was right on the shore. <laughs> so the area where Justin's body was found could be considered a swampy pond. If you were to walk in a straight line to this area from his shed, you would have to travel through trees and underbrush. And it isn't an easy walk. And this would have been more difficult in December with snow on the ground. You can also drive to the area and walk into it from a footpath. But this would be much less of a straight line and therefore a longer distance. Especially if someone was walking while they were, say, bleeding heavily, if that makes sense. Because keep in mind, there was a large, unsurvivable amount of blood in the shed. Justin was found partially on the shore of the pond and partially submerged. We believe that his head and shoulder area may have been in the water. We have read it reported that there was an increased rate of decomposition and animal scavenging near his head and neck area. This would create a challenging situation for the coroner to come up with a cause of death, as it can be hard to decipher if there were cuts or bruises around his head and neck. Initially, the police noticed one or two cuts on one of Justin's wrists. These cuts were horizontal in direction and did not appear deep. The police also located a rusty old X-Acto knife in the pond. This would lead police to suggest that Justin's death was a suicide. 
So we need to talk about this theory. Keep in mind, there was an unsurvivable amount of blood in the shed. Justin's blood. So the police theory is that Justin attempted suicide in the shed, then left the shed, not getting any blood on the door, but leaving a lot of blood on the floor. He then would walk through the snow while bleeding out for 350 meters in deep underbrush. Then he would approach the pond, throw an exacto knife into the pond, and collapse half in and half out of the pond. Keep in mind the exacto knife was in the pond and could have been there for years. We should also add to this theory that there has been no evidence of a blood trail leading away from the shed. At the time of his death, Justin had just bought a new snowmobile and a hard-sided fishing hut for the upcoming ice fishing season. He had just bought Christmas gifts for his friends and family. He was a happy young man who was engaged with his family. We know that suicide can often be masked in silence or behind happiness, but it is hard to reconcile suicide with all of this other information about who Justin was and with the evidence at the scene. Also, his phone and earbuds have never been found. So did he throw his phone away while he was bleeding out? His earbud charging case was found in his pocket. This theory does not make any sense for Jamie and the rest of Justin's family. And then, in August of 2021, a bombshell landed on the case. This bombshell would come in the form of the medical examiner report that challenged the police's theory of suicide. So on uh, May 28th, we had a meeting um, with the police, and that is this is when they informed us that they had a preliminary report and that they were um, looking at uh, that Justin had committed suicide. Um, now, they stated this, and their their theory is that he, because he, he had a, they told us in this meeting that he had a cut on his left wrist and that there was no other injuries to his body. And that their theory was he stumbled from the shed in delirium and he knocked it. I did the walk. I found the easiest route I could, and it was over 10 minutes, and I drove part of it to get there to where he was. And, we don't, and, I, and I mean, the guy had to climb over brush and, and all sorts of other debris and stuff, and we just, we knew, we know that he wouldn't do that, and I told them in the meeting that they were wrong, but they just wouldn't listen. And then I got the coroner's report back, I actually don't remember the date, but it was about two weeks ago, maybe three now, sorry. And in the coroner report, it's it states that um, but he had two cuts on his left wrist. And in the report, it says exactly, likely non-fatal insides wounds to the left wrist that uh, involved no that involve no arteries and um, but they can't ascertain cause of death because of the decomposition and the scavenging from the animals to his face, neck and chest. We want to highlight here that the medical examiner report stated that the two small cuts on Justin's wrists did not cut any arteries, meaning that these were non-fatal wounds. We want to dig a little deeper into the coroner's report. 
So the autopsy was performed on May 21st, 2021 by the Office of the Chief Coroner of Ontario, two days after Justin was found on the edge of the swamp in a wooded area that borders on the Muskoka Mobile Home Park where he lived. The cause of death on the report is listed as unascertained. In the report, the investigating coroner, Dr. Scott Wynott, determined that due to advanced decomposition of the head and neck area, that the cause of death could not be determined. The postmortem scavenging to the neck and chest area may have obscured some injuries that could have been fatal. So this means that there could have been stab wounds, strangulation, or blunt force trauma that has been hidden due to the state of advanced decomposition. The report goes on to say that Justin's body was found May 19th, lying face up, partially submerged in water and partially entangled in tree roots at the side of a pond, and that Justin was identified through dental records. Located with the body was a bag of grassy-appearing substance and an empty case of headphones. Again, his phone and his earbuds have not been found. The report goes on to say that the two superficial likely non-fatal wounds were found on the left forearm, each 7.5 centimeters in length, located on the radial side of the wrist, cutting tendons, but no major blood vessels. The radial side of the wrist is the thumb side. The report then says that on May 22nd, the day after the postmortem, a rusted X-Acto knife was retrieved from the water near where Justin was found. The report states that the possibility of drowning also cannot be excluded. The report adds that no significant natural disease was identified and that the toxicology testing was ruled non-contributory. They also performed a CT scan and found no further injury to the body. The report also mentions contributing factors that need to be included in any conclusions. This includes the shed, where significant amounts of blood were found in December of 2020. So obviously this report was a vindication for Justin's family and supporters. They all feel in their hearts that this was not a suicide and that foul play was involved. So let's get into some of the other evidence after a quick break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
And we are back. So before the break, we laid out who Justin was as a person and the timeline and details leading up to his suspicious death. We now want to go through some very specific aspects of his case. So first off, like we have said many times, Justin's phone has never been found. And while his earbud charger case was found on his body, his earbuds have not been found. So this is important for a couple of reasons. According to the GPS information on Justin's phone, he returned home from work on Thursday morning. Then, according to the GPS coordinates on his phone, he did not leave the property of the Muskoka Falls mobile home park until his phone went offline on Sunday morning at 6 a.m. This would be the day before he was reported missing. And of course, keep in mind that his body was found about 300 meters away from the mobile home park, which means that there would have been a slight adjustment on his locations to suggest that he was in a different place if he had his phone on him. Now, another important thing is that Justin listened to audiobooks on his Audible app. And according to his Audible app, Justin started a book on Friday, December 11th. This book continued to play until the book ended. But Justin had his app set to autoplay. This means another book started playing right away afterwards, either a book that he had listen to parts of or all of whatever would happen next in the line of books would start to play next. This book then played until Sunday, December 13th at 6 a.m. when his phone died or disappeared. This means that Justin was allegedly listening to audiobooks for basically two straight days without sleeping or pausing the books ever. This seems highly unlikely. So clearly this is odd because someone would have to have put his phone on the charger and we know that his charger was in his bedroom. But if Justin was deceased and didn't have his phone on him, who put his phone on the charger allowing it to play audible for two whole days? Keep in mind that based on the GPS evidence that the phone did not leave the property. As we stated earlier, Jamie did receive a text from Justin's phone on Saturday, but she does not believe that this text came from Justin. Okay, so let's hold on to that phone evidence for a minute and talk about the shed. As we stated before, there are two sheds, Justin's shed and Ken's shed. Bud McKinney stated that he saw Justin inside what is known as Ken's shed at 7 a.m. on Sunday, December 12th. Bud states that he waved to Justin. Uh, this is an odd statement because the sun wouldn't rise until about 7.45 a.m. and it would have been quite dark out. However, Bud's grandma states that she fed Justin breakfast at 8.30 a.m. just after Justin woke up. Then at 8.45 a.m., Justin went out to what is referred to as Justin's shed. So why are there two different stories for Saturday morning? Why are there two different timelines and two different locations or sheds? But getting back to the evidence in the shed, Justin's shed was found to have an unsurvivable amount of blood on the floor. So clearly Justin was attacked inside of his shed, and it can be hypothesized that based on the audiobook activity and phone GPS that this attack took place on Friday. Then Justin's body was moved at some point on the weekend. His phone would have been disposed of on Sunday. Then the police arrived at 4 p.m. on Monday, December 14th, when Justin was reported missing. Justin was six foot two and a big, healthy man. 
Moving Justin would not be a one-person job. Based on the lack of a blood trail out of the shed, it is possible that he was moved in a truck, van, or car. Based on this, it is possible that other people are involved, or other people know more than what they are saying. We are now going to talk about some other folks who may have more information and may still be able to help this investigation. To be clear, we are not saying that any of these people committed homicide. We are saying that based on their proximity, they may have more information. So the first people we need to highlight are Bud and Kiara. Bud is Justin's childhood friend. He is also Justin's roommate and co-worker. Kiara is Bud's girlfriend. There has been a lot of he said, she said online with these two in particular. They have made posts online and deleted them. They have clapped back at Justin's family and been, in Jamie's words, cruel. Again, if you want to get into the details of the online posts, we suggest you check out any of the 27 videos about this case on the YouTube channel, It's a Crime. Kiara has been very vocal online, including making multiple public statements that she did not like Justin. Most recently, Bud and Kiara posted a lengthy post in which they alleged that Justin confided in them that he was gay. This seemed like an attempt to claim that Justin had secrets and therefore was at risk. It was a very strange thing to post online about someone who has died. When we spoke to Jamie about this, she stated that there was no evidence to indicate that Justin was gay. She went on to say that if he was, he would have been loved completely by his family and supported if he chose to come out to them. They've made posts on Facebook that have contradicted the things that they've said to us and what we understand they said understand they said to police but obviously we don't have access to what they said to the police they could just be like we're not sure but um they made a when the police um came out and said that they weren't looking at a homicide or they didn't believe they were looking at a homicide anymore only Bud and Kiara tried to agree with nobody else so if that was difficult to understand Jamie was just letting us know that when police came out that they were not investigating a homicide or they didn't think they were investigating a homicide, the only two people that agreed with that statement were Bud and Kiara. And then they put a post out that said that Justin had confided and come out to them that he was gay. And honestly, I don't don't believe Justin was gay, but if he was, you know, if he didn't want to tell me, it was his own personal business. But he, he would have known that I wouldn't have cared. Justin's family believed that this story was just an attempt to deflect the attention that has come on to Bud and Kiara. And they are not alone in this sentiment. Jamie has described Bud and Kiara's behavior as cruel. I just, I found their behavior very unusual and not appropriate for... Um, it's happened. Kiara's on, on social media been very vocal about not liking Tristan, and she's just been very cruel and hurtful. Another odd thing that occurred yet again on Facebook is that Bud uploaded a photo of him and Kiara kissing months after Justin was reported missing. This in itself is not odd, but what is odd is that he was wearing Justin's sunglasses. When he was asked about this, he would later claim that Justin sold them to him. 
But who sells old scratched up sunglasses to a friend? The whole post was odd and tasteless. This sunglasses thing may seem small, but the next point is not, as it involves potentially criminal activity and a cover-up. Bud originally lied to Jamie and the police by stating that his father, Ken, went with them on the shopping trip to Barrie on Saturday, December 12th. Ken did not go on this trip. He was allegedly at home drinking. So this leads us to Ken, Bud's father. Bud and Ken lied about Ken going on the shopping trip to Barrie. Because of this, Ken has been charged with obstruction of justice. What's interesting here is that Bud, it seems, told the original lie about Ken being on the shopping trip with them, but now Ken is actually facing the obstruction of justice charge. And according to the news outlet MuskokaRegion.com on September 14th, 2021, a second plea date for Kenneth McKinney, 71 years old, of Kilworthy, has been set for September 28th. McKinney is facing one count of obstructing justice in the ongoing investigation into former missing Gravenhurst man Justin Evans. So why would Ken and Bud lie about Ken being away from the mobile home on Saturday? What happened on Saturday that made them need to create an alibi for Ken? It should be noted that Ken is no stranger to law enforcement. He has multiple driving while impaired charges. In fact, there's a local news story from 2016 about Ken titled, Repeat drunk driver crashes on Gravenhurst Highway. Ken was three times over the legal limit when he crashed into a cement barrier. There is also some anecdotal evidence to suggest that violence occurs in Ken's home. Justin told his family a story of a fist fight that occurred in the mobile home between Ken and Bud. We need to clarify here that Ken is a man who is now in his 70s and a heavy drinker. Bud is a healthy young man in his early 20s. We have heard it reported that Ken is actually Bud's grandfather, but has been his adopted father for a long time. Anyway, one night, Bud punched Ken out. Ken ended up bleeding on the floor, and Justin was concerned about Ken's injuries and wanted to call an ambulance. But Bud didn't want the police to come due to Ken's history with law enforcement. Eventually, a story was made up that Ken fell, and only then did they call an ambulance for the bleeding older man. So clearly this shows a history of violence and cover-up within the McKinney home. But again, why did anyone, whether it was Bud or Ken, lie about Ken going to Barry on Saturday, December 12th, 2020? The last person we need to talk about is a man named Lucas Albinus. Lucas has played a key role in this investigation. Lucas was a man in his late 20s who was also living at the mobile home park. Lucas worked a job in construction, primarily plumbing and heating systems type of work. Lucas was Justin's neighbor. The two men would hang out occasionally for a bonfire and a beer. From what we gather, he lived next door to Justin for a few months. Yes, um, so Lucas lived right next door to Justin. Um, Justin's shed was between their properties. Um, Lucas moved into the trailer park um, approximately September of 2020. I could be off by a month or so, but not very long he lived there. And um, 
other than being a neighbor, um, Justin would have little bonfires. Um, and if Lucas was home, I know sometimes he would go out to the bonfire and they'd have a cup of beer and, and just, you know, hang out for an evening and stuff like that. Um, but other than that, um, I didn't even know Lucas's name until after Justin went missing. Um, they were just neighbors. Lucas was questioned by the police after Justin was reported missing. His home was searched by the police, and his work van and car were also taken in for forensic testing. Just days after Lucas was questioned by the police, he died by suicide after stepping in front of a train in Orillia, Ontario. Before he died, he left an audio recording suicide note. In it, he took some responsibility for Justin's death. Here's Jamie. And he committed, Lucas committed suicide about almost a month after Justin was reported missing. And uh, he takes at least some partial responsibility for what happened to Justin. But what he said in his recording was that I'm partially responsible for what happened. There's a monster inside of me and a darkness took over. I'm going to end it before anybody else gets hurt. So let's unpack that. Jamie herself has not heard this recording that Lucas made. It has been relayed to her through law enforcement. But essentially, Lucas is taking some responsibility, saying a darkness took over and that he was going to end his life before anyone else got hurt. So the question remains, if Lucas was responsible, did he act alone? As we stated, his vehicles were brought in for forensic testing and other evidence has been seized from Lucas's home. Police are keeping any discoveries from these items to themselves at this time. So where are we today? We know that Justin would have had to have been moved, possibly with a vehicle, from the shed to the pond. We know that the vehicles on the McKinney property as well as inside of the home and the sheds were all searched. We know that the vehicles and the home that belonged to Lucas were searched. We know we have some sort of confession from Lucas, but did he act alone? And why are people lying about their activities on Saturday, December 12, 2020? Again, we need to repeat that Justin's phone has not been found and that his phone did not leave the property. His phone played an audiobook for two days before going dark on Sunday at 6 a.m. And lastly, there was an unsurvivable amount of blood in Justin's shed. We asked Jamie how our listeners can help. We need to keep Justin and his case being talked about and demanding that he have justice. He didn't commit suicide. His son was murdered. And the people responsible should pay for what they've done. And the police should be accountable for the things that they that, that they should have done. The, the, the area he was found should have been searched. It's so close to his home. And we asked, we asked them if they wanted help. And they turned us down every time. The coroner report ruled not a suicide. But they're still, when I talk to them, they're still trying to rule him a suicide. I don't know what else to do other than just ask people to, keep pushing and and telling them like no this isn't enough you know this is clearly not what happened and i think it's because justin lived in a trailer park and they just didn't care i guess but he was a good boy 
He was a good young man. He deserves to have justice, but he should pay for what they've done to him. They're they're going on and living life, but I don't want them to get comfortable thinking that they got away with it. He deserves so much better. Please join the Facebook group, Justice for Justin. We will link it in our show notes and on our Facebook page. And as our listeners know, we are not investigators. We don't have all of the answers in this case, the suspicious death of Justin Evans. We have tried our best to lay out all of the details that we know exist in this case. We hope that some answers come soon. Before we go, we would like to thank Jamie for trusting us with Justin's story. Our hearts go out to Justin's family, and we hope that justice comes soon. Thank you all for joining us this episode. Our producers on the podcast are Lisa Marie, Amy's Book Reviews, Thomas E., Susan S., Alex and Andrea P., Kennedy, Alberta, Cindy McDee, Blair M., Alyssa S., CJ Jeze, Anastasia, Ariel E., Melanie E., Kelly D., Carolyn M., Emily L., Jason D., Jimmy H., Tiffany C., Keith R., Mari M., Lorena, Queen Nebula, Maureen, Jesse D.R., and The Missing and Unexplained Podcast. We will be back soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.